0: Welcome to Strange New Work, a series from What Works about how speculative fiction can help us imagine radically different ways of working and doing business. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. When I was a kid, I thoroughly believed that the best books started with a map.
1: So I became very interested in world building at a very specific moment going to a thrift store growing up and finding a copy of one of uh, Lord of the Rings books and seeing that there were maps inside of the book. That's artist and writer Morgan Harper Nichols. And that to me was like a pivotal moment. I was like, This is a fiction book with a map on the inside. And as a little kid, you know, I didn't have the language world building. I wouldn't have called it that then. But I did know. I'm like, okay, so this is not a real world, but there are maps for the world. I like that. Um, So ever since I was a kid, I'm like, I guess I'm making maps. But I remember just taking my pencil and just like drawing an island all along the page like turning the loosely you know wide wool paper sideways Mm -hmm. (laughs) and drawing a line on it and then drawing the mountains and i remember like even as we're talking my hand is still moving that way i remember it like it was yesterday i remember how natural it just felt to just draw this where the rivers are where the mountains were It was a different process. Now, I love writing stories, but it was a different process than that because I wasn't, I didn't feel as much of like, okay, well, this character's got to do that. This world building can be complex, of course, but you know, I was like seven or eight years old. I don't remember how young I was. I was pretty young. And I just remember how free I felt to just map that out. You'll hear more from Morgan in just a
0: bit but I want to pause on maps as a tool for imagining new realities. And as a case study, I'd actually like to use a bit of speculative history. In The Years of Rice and Salt, author Kim Stanley Robinson imagines a world in which the plague kills off the vast majority of European Christians, and neither Europe nor Christianity becomes an imperialist, hegemonic force that shapes history. The novel follows, instead, the rise of Chinese, Indian, and Islamic societies, including an eventual crossing of the Pacific to get to the west coast of a continent they call Yingzu. There, they encounter the native peoples, who also become key players on the world stage. Robinson's novel starts with a chronology rather than a map. It's a simple timeline that identifies a few key events in Robinson's history after it departs from our own. And it indicates those events using the Islamic calendar primarily, but also provides some indication of the Chinese, Christian, and Buddhist calendars. The novel unfolds over nearly 1,500 years and takes place all over the world. Each chapter begins with its own map and takes place in a different era. In many ways, Robinson tackled an extremely challenging bit of world-building here. He started with a simple enough question. What if the European Christian hegemony never came to dominate the world. And from there, he constructed an intricate history that explored the many ways the world would be different and the many ways it would be the same. Now, it's not a book that tries to argue that it would be better if Europeans had all but died out, but simply probes the question, what if? What makes this world-building such a challenge is that Robinson tasked himself with constructing a mirror world, an uncanny representation of what's familiar rather than what's utterly foreign. The world Robinson builds is layered on top of the world we know, the same physics, the same geography, and even many of the same cultural and political contours. What I find so fascinating about the use of maps in the years of Rice and Salt is the way they encourage the reader to look at familiar shapes and see something completely different from what they're used to seeing. The reader sees what looks like the Indian subcontinent, but also sees that it's labeled the Travancore League. The reader sees what looks like the North American continent, but also sees it labeled as Ying Zhu each map is its own what-if. Each map reminds the reader that even in our own world, there are different names for places and different key figures in different histories. We simply go about our days forgetting that those worlds actually exist. But I've gotten ahead of myself. What exactly is world-building?
1: So, World building is a, um, it's like the process of creating a fictional world, essentially. That is probably the best way to explain it. And you if you've ever heard of Narnia or, you know, any kind of fictional world, like every author or writer or video game builder approaches it differently, but to some degree that is that that writer or those writers creating the history and geography and you call it like all of the the lore it, what, what are the characters the beings like like it's all of those kind of rules of the land or rules of the world behind the scenes in a recent
0: episode of apple tv's foundation an adaptation of isaac asimov's novel of the same name two characters get curious about what happened to all the human form robots in all my years, I've never encountered this stairwell. I doubt Day has. I wonder if any of us have.
1: Odd sensation. What? To feel like a stranger in one's own home.
0: I grabbed the remote control to turn up the volume and squealed in Sean's general direction, ooh, backstory, I love backstory. And in that moment, I learned something new about why I'm so drawn to speculative fiction. I'm actually less interested in the story and much more interested in what the story reveals about the world it takes place in. I want to know all the rules. I want to know the history, the politics, the culture, and the religion, and how each informs the story's many elements. It's no surprise, really. I should have seen it a lot sooner. I approach speculative fiction in the same way I approach the quote-unquote
1: real world. Real world building, such as, you know— Lord of the Rings, that's Tolkien. He's like, you know, grandfather of world building. And then in a modern sense, you have N.K. Jemisin, another amazing world builder. And I just respect the great world builders of the world. I'm like, oh, I'm not really a real one. However, after I received my autism and ADHD and sensory processing disorder, diagnosis it was then that I realized that the worlds that I had been building was so much more than just a creative practice and it was a way of me being able to imagine what a world could be like where I felt like I belonged.
0: Morgan recently wrote an essay on world building as a practice, one not only for speculative fiction writers or fantasists, but for anyone. She wrote about how, while she's certainly started drafts of stories based in her fictional worlds, she learned to let go of the connection between the world she's building and the story product. Well, that was one of the things from your from your essay that really stood out to me was this idea of just making world after world after world without yes. feeling the need to, like, write a whole novel or a yes. whole trilogy or series yes. of novels after you yeah. did it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was just like a really liberating idea that this could be a practice in and of yeah. itself. Um, something that came to me while you were kind of describing that is I'm wondering if... There's something about maybe the way the autistic brain can work that sees the sort of the ways that our world is a construction, just the Mm. way any other constructed world is that maybe makes that process feel a little more um, engaging or involving or just
1: interesting to us. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) I have been, I have been like analyzing my whole life now and I've been thinking about that because I was like, you know what? Maybe the reason why I was so drawn to it was because I was picking up on everyone else's making up rules. So I need a space to make up rules too. Like I have to spend my whole day following everyone else's social rules Mm -hmm. about how loud or quiet your voice could be. Like I was always told I was talking too quiet. But I'm like, well, I hear you all getting on all the kids for being too loud. I, w- can someone show me where the board is where or we can go measure the volume of our voice, you know? And it was like, oh, you're being too quiet. Speak up. I'm like, well, you speak up. Like there's like decibels. Like can you all just be clear and stop having all these hidden rules? Like I felt like childhood was just filled with like all these hidden rules about how to just exist. Um, And, you know, the older, I feel like the older I got, it was like, okay, yeah, there's a safety rules. Like, don't put your hand on the hot stove. But then like some of these rules, y'all, they just seem a little ridiculous. Like, again, like the whole, the inside voice. I'm like, can you clarify?
0: Okay, so at this point, you might be starting to wonder what world building has to do with the future of work. And it's simple, really. What we think of as future of work ideas today are simply incremental changes. They take how things are and just imagine faster computers, smarter machines, more creative artificial intelligence. These ideas largely leave in place the systems, hierarchies, and assumptions of our familiar work world. They take what's familiar about the office and just move it into the home or onto the Zoom screen. They take what we've come to assume about hierarchy and replicate it with apps. But to truly imagine a strange new world of work, we need world building. We need to start from scratch. We need to question all of our assumptions. Reimagine the physics, geography, culture, economics, and politics of work. And yet, there remains the magnetic pull of capitalist realism. Imagining things being truly different can feel damn near impossible. I'm curious how, what your world building process Mm -hmm. looks like. Where do you start? How do you flesh it out? How does it come to you?
1: Yes, it is a full, like multi-sensory experience and words come last. So I have like a bunch of Pinterest pins, just like, you know, lots of other people. They have different things that I like. And then I'll go back and look for patterns. So I love patterns. Yes. (laughs) And I'm like okay, I've been pinning lots of this shade of green, like different photographs that have like a lot. And I like to pin a lot of actual places like gardens or different things like that. And that was, and gardens was actually one that I noticed. I was like, why do I keep pinning gardens? And I was like, I think I, I think there's something there that I need to explore. I think maybe I'm interested in, in how a garden can be, like a, a different version, I kind of went back to Childhood Secret Garden, but like a different version of that. I'm like a garden where I could see myself in, what does that look like? So I just start just from a like an architecture standpoint, like just trying to work on the architecture of, there is a place that I am trying to imagine. So I don't necessarily worry about story first or what stories might happen there. I just focus on the fact of, why am I being drawn to this place? And how can I bring color to this place? And then I literally, and this is where my my poetry ends up kind of like sneaking up to the surface from this process because I spend so much time in building that place that I start to like hear the message of that place and like how I would want to feel in that place if I were there, what I might be thinking about. So in the fiction that I have written, I spend a lot of time on like, character's inner thoughts and just the complexities of that and, and internal struggle. I, I love to spend a lot of time on that because that reflects my own experience of just like having so much internal struggle and not having an outlet for it. So yeah, that's where I spend most of my time is like just thinking about a place that just seems like a place that I want to spend time with. And then from there, I start to see like, well, what other things does it connect to? And Mm -hmm. does this place have a history? Um, And it's different every time. And the way I keep up with it all is I use a lot of different apps. Right now, I've been using Notion quite a bit to start to kind of make a Wiki out of all of my ideas that I've had and just put it all together. And I'm realizing that I've actually been more strategic than I, than I thought, like for a while, I was like, oh yeah, I'm just kind of getting things started. But now that I'm going through like all my notes and all, I'm like, oh no, I, I've, I've been building like a whole universe all these years. I think the biggest word that I can kind of use to tie it all together is just a dream, like a dream of what kind of world I would like to see. And yes, I might not have a physical world where there are lavender glass flowers, but what is it about that lavender glass flower that is reflective of something that I would like to experience in the real world? So, world building is a useful skill in imagining how whole
0: systems can be different, including the institution of work. But, world building is also a useful skill for considering how we can create situations that better meet our needs. World building encourages us to view the smallest details of our lives and our work as opportunities to get creative, to choose something that works better for us. The workplace is sort of built for a particular personality, a particular yeah. mode of communication, a particular way of showing up. Yes. And uh, it is exclusionary to... All of the many people for all of the different reasons who communicate or work or process things differently. And so I think part of what I'm hearing in that story and throughout the conversation is sort of finding the way that you can set yourself up to communicate most of the time in the way that is
1: best for you. Absolutely. Yes. That's so important because, you know, it took me a long time to realize this, but. I can challenge myself to show up in ways that don't feel necessarily natural to me, such mm-hmm. as you're going to be brought in to speak. But then there's going to be like this dinner the hour before and then like after there's going to be a QA. Like something like that is going to take me a long time to <laughs> prepare for and recover for- from. <laughs> so... You know, years ago, I was like, Whoa, well, that's what everyone everyone's doing these kinds of things. So I got to do this. I got to make my life about this. And I would just wear myself out. My physical body was immensely impacted by that. My mental health was impacted by that. Like my finances, because it stressed me out. I didn't have time to do other things I needed to do. And it left me feeling very tired. So now what I do is I'm like, okay, find those few things that you do. And you can do that 10%, 20% of the time, but 80% of the time I've got to structure even my business around what I'm the best at. And what I found that I'm the best at is I'm really good at color palettes. I'm really good at putting collections together. I'm really good at saying like, Oh, no, that 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 sun is too orange. It needs a little bit of pink behind it. And those are the kind of things that are important to product design. They're important yeah. to, you know, like a lot of the like kind of more I do less art licensing. So a lot of the projects and things I've been involved with that really comes in handy there. I can sit there. I am the kind of person I can have an hour long meeting about the shade of goals that they were going to use. That's me, you know, but it's like you asked me to do an hour long informal luncheon. I can't do anything else for the rest of the week. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I am learning more and more like, well, what are those specific things and how can I structure, you know, this world that I'm living in, structure my space in this world that I'm living in, in a way that the parts that I can control are the things that are energizing me and that I feel like I'm confident enough to do. And that's just... That's just become absolutely crucial.
0: I am sure that you have opportunities coming out the wazoo uh, for all sorts of different kinds of projects. Have you developed a system for yourself around either or both saying yes and no, or kind of negotiating into like, I hear you're asking for this, this, and this. I can't do the first two things, but I can definitely do the third thing and maybe Mm -hmm. I can do this thing over here. Can you talk to me about that process?
1: absolutely I used to think that this kind of thinking was selfish I used yeah. to think that what I'm about to say like no that's selfish but I've had to learn and I think it's especially you know just depending on what someone's background might be if you come from any kind of people pleasing you know whatever like if that's ever been a part of your sort, which that was a part of mine and something I still struggle with I think it's important to consider things like this so what I do is when requests come in like I say like what's in it for me Mm -hmm. and i know that might be like a taboo i'm telling you for a long time in my life i would have been like no how dare you ask that and i'm like and that's exactly why you need to ask it because if you're the kind of person who's immediately resistant to it you might also be the kind of person who's saying yes to a whole bunch of stuff that is wearing you down and i had to learn that the hard way because when i got my diagnosis i was very grateful to have gotten a specialist and the one that I had she was also very strict on me she was like you are gonna have to slow down she was like you are doing too much um and (laughs) and my therapist thankfully she didn't have social media and she so she was like so tell me what what do you do and like explaining it all she's like oh no that's you're gonna have to slow down she's (laughs) like you're gonna have to take some of this off your plate and I'm like no you don't understand that's kind of like the industry she's like I know but we're gonna have to work and for six months she helped me figure out okay Here's something you can say no to. Here's something you can do. So it took me a while to get there. And she helped me realize like, you gotta figure out how to do things on your own terms. So that that might not be a question that everybody in the world asks. Like, what's in it for me? Like, there's probably there's people out there who just <laughs> that's the only way they think. <laughs> but um that that wasn't me. I was the opposite of that. I was like, no, no, no. I can't think about what I think. I have to think about what everyone else is doing. So I I asked that. And if someone asked me, I'm like, well, for instance it's like, if I'm saying yes to a podcast, I'm like, this is something I really want to talk about. (laughs) That's, that's exactly what it is. It's like, it's not like this, like, big, like, oh, you don't think about others thing. It's like, no, what's in it for me is I get to connect with somebody else who is interested in these things that I'm interested in. And I'm really looking forward to talking with this person, which is this moment right now. (laughs) So that is, that is how I see it. It's like, if I get a message and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so exciting. By by going there, I get to talk about that and I get to share about this thing that I've been working on. And or it, or even if it's um, for instance, I am <laughs> sounds so official to say, I'm the vice president, um, the, the board of directors for the mental health organization to love on her arms. And it does take quite a bit for me to, you know, be, you know, meetings. There's a lot involved in that, but What's in it for me in the sense is I really care about the mental health state of pe- of just of people in general mm-hmm. and how dire it is and how hard it is for people to be able to get resources like that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night like I'm always thinking about it so that's why I say yes because it's a very important issue and I'm like I know that I want to give more and and act on courage and like being a part of this so What's in it for me is a learning opportunity. I think that's another part of it. Sometimes you say yes to things because it's like, oh, this is actually a cause that I'm not familiar with. And I want to learn more about what these people are doing. I want to learn more about their work. So what's in it is I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. I'm going to be a part of something that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. So yeah, (laughs) that's kind of what it's been like.
0: (laughs) World building is a creative practice a meditative practice, a systemic and structural practice. And it's also a practice we can use to think up all sorts of alternative ways forward when the usual expectations or assumptions don't work for us. World building is a way we can reimagine work on an institutional, cultural, or economic level. But it's also a way we can reimagine a project a work day, or even an individual task. The key to putting world building into practice is to practice noticing and questioning all the little things we take for granted. This meeting is 60 minutes long? Well, what if it was only 20 minutes? This job is for a contractor? What if it was done by a full-time employee? The fee for this project is $500? What if it was $5,000? My work week is 40 hours? What if it were, say, 25? Those are only some of the most obvious ways to apply the what ifs. Truly, any small assumption can be questioned. Any best practice can be rewritten. Any new project can be negotiated from scratch. And just because things are the way they've always been doesn't mean you can't make a different choice and build a better world today. Huge thanks to Morgan Harper Nichols for sharing her world-building practice with me. You can find her work on Substack, on her wildly popular Instagram account or at morganharpernichols.com. Next week's episode of Strange New Work is about time. How does work change when we embrace much, much longer timeframes? What happens when we trust that there's enough time to practice our values in the way we work or do business? You'll hear from coach Jordan Maney and one of the authors of Beloved Economies, Joanna C. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form in my newsletter. Subscribe at whatworks.fyi, where you can also chip in $7 per month to support my work, get premium content, and discounts to workshops. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutanaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.